It's now 23 minutes to 11. We go to Wellington now for Midweek Media Watch. Good evening, Colin. Hi, Karen. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. It's all about the virus. Yeah, not well, not entirely. Hopefully we'll get on to something different uh, at the end if, we, if we've got time. But yeah, of course, there's plenty about it. Everything went up a notch yesterday, didn't it? And again, today we had that uh, epic economic package, uh, four new cases yesterday, two each in Wellington and Dunedin, so eight more uh, today. Uh, so yeah, it's getting it's getting pretty real for the, the media, but the media have also been um, upping their own preparations, preparing to work remotely and so on. And, and just this evening, uh, the Seven Sharp show opened with the host, um, Hilary Barry, having to uh, talk to the co-host uh, Jeremy Wells down the line from his home because he said to go into isolation because he talked to someone from the show The Bachelorette um, and TVNZ made an announcement earlier today that someone is being tested on that program and uh, they've had to put in place precautions and, and that was one of them, no no Jeremy Wells on his own show tonight. Well, in some ways this is, this is a, a really good test run. I know it's real and it's happening, but it's a test run for uh, an emergency of this kind for the media, isn't it? Yeah, sure is. And I think uh, today's stuff and the Herald, I think, began preparations for trialling their newsrooms to work remotely uh, in advance of any requirement that they really don't have any other option. Listeners of Morning Report might have heard uh, that Susie and Corin, the presenters, uh, have home studios ready. Corin was presenting from um, his one Today, um, the Sydney Morning Herald, incidentally, yesterday they announced they prepared an entire edition for the first time in, I think, a hundred and something years, um, entirely remotely. The newsroom was completely empty and they had a, an edition uh, heavy with uh, coronavirus content uh, that was produced, no one in the newsroom at all, um, and entirely done from other locations. Gosh, I hope that doesn't mean that's where the future will be. Well, it happened actually here when uh, the Christchurch quakes happened and because uh, this is, what, 2011, um, the whole Fairfax network, as it was called then, stuff as it's known now, has become so interlinked that it was possible for them. They relocated out to the print plant, which wasn't damaged out by Christchurch Airport, and the paper, the press, was actually laid out by um, the Wellington team that does the Dominion Post. Um, they were sent back down the line to the print plant and, you know, remarkably, it's one of the great feats of the age, really, that they got a newspaper out the day after the big quake and some people who got it uh, on their driveway or in their letterbox in the morning couldn't believe it and really appreciated it. Uh, and that was done um, because of that ability to interlink and work, work remotely. So, yeah, this is all being worked through now because um, already people are, like RNZ, for instance, is saying we won't invite people into the studio unless we have to. Um, or they really want to come, in which case we'll take precautions, so interviewing guests over the phone, via Skype, or some other means, you know, that that's, it's all being done. I guess my point was really about job losses in the future, if they can find an easier and cheaper way to do it. Ah, well there's that too, uh, because you know, what's been described as the new normal uh, by Jacinda Ardern for the country in general, yet the media, I mean some things might not get back to normal in, in that sense and it all depends how long it lasts how long it goes for and like other industries um, yeah it's difficult and we don't quite know what shape we'll be in um, as the phrase has it when we come out the other end of this or when that will be but in the meantime you know the media have got 
big responsibilities and you know the time when there's a great demand for content they're trying to meet that too so RNZ putting out a new daily e-newsletter and podcast from Friday a show that'll be up at uh, I think 8am uh, each each Friday a podcast uh, with roundups of the day's news and so on stuff is doing its own um, bulletin of coronavirus updates every day online electronic bulletin too so all this uh, will stretch journalists and um, well we can but hope that uh, the whole industry comes out in a reasonable shape at the end. What about the ethics of it? Yeah, good questions about that. Um, Tim Murphy, the former Herald editor, now co-editor of the newsroom.co.nz site, put it quite nicely. He said, the media must inform without unnecessarily alarming uh, and the public and weigh the need to be first with the news uh, breaks, uh, weigh that effect on victims or medical ramifications and the responsibility to let authorities deliver updates in full context. So quite a lot in that. But uh, there was an interesting case yesterday, actually, when it was revealed that there was a pupil in Dunedin uh, at Logan Park High School, the school was named, um, that was showing symptoms. He hadn't or she hadn't even tested positive at that point. Um, but the demands were already coming on social media to, to close the school. And the ODT uh, on its Facebook page, Otago Daily Times, asked its followers, do you have children at the school? We're keen to talk to parents or caregivers about that announcement. How do you feel about it? If you'd be happy to speak to our reporter, get in touch. Um, and a lot of fo- followers uh, on the Facebook page there put some pretty hefty comments criticising the ODT. They thought that was um, needlessly ramping up concern and stirring up people, and, uh, yeah, they didn't appreciate it at all. And the ODT actually hit back with quite a a spiky comment to, to one of these people. They said, we are working very hard to inform the public during the outbreak. Our coverage is getting important information out there. It's easy for keyboard warriors to criticise media like ourselves, said the ODT, but we're doing our jobs. Uh, If you want to look for someone to have a go at, maybe go and have a go at social media, which is full of misinformation. So, yeah, a bit of um, tension and a bit of blowback there uh, from the Otago Daily Times. Well, yeah, they're feeling a bit touchy, though, aren't they? They've had a few issues in the past. Yes, they have, the cartoons and so on. But, uh, look, in some cases, the media have actually held on to some of those sensitive details which could have made things difficult for individuals. For example, um, in the Bay of Plenty somewhere at a campground that Stuff knows about but will not name, there are 40 Thai kiwifruit workers who've been quarantined in a roped off area and then the story about this they say look we know where it is we will not give the name of the campground which I think is a good decision and newsroom in that story by Tim Murphy that I mentioned earlier it's co-editor he said at least of one of the uh, well the eight cases that we had yesterday it's now 20 of course but one of the confirmed cases as of Tuesday is reputedly a well-known European figure um, now, if that was true and people knew who it was, I think in other countries, that definitely would have been, you know, reported by uh, the media elsewhere. So, you know, there are tough ethical calls. And the, the big one um, was an interesting one in Italy where a, a reputable paper, Corriera della Sera, has been heavily criticised because a couple of weeks ago they got wind of the fact that the city of Parma was going to be locked down in a couple of days and they leaked that news out. So, of course, what happened? Everyone took off uh, or went to visit people and came back again, and that completely um, blew the uh, the efficacy of, of having a lockdown and keeping it contained. Um, yeah, so perhaps not a good decision there. 
No, but they discussed this, did they, on the media show, the BBC media show? Yeah, they did. And this was interesting because uh, it was an interesting episode. We've got a link to it on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website uh, for our midweek Media Watch for today. Go and have a look at the page if you want to and click the link. The program is called Panic and the Truth, but it's the weekly edition of of, uh, BBC Radio's weekly media show. And uh, they asked two London-based editors, um, one, the woman, Jess Bramer, works for the Huffington Post in the UK, and the man in this uh, segment uh, is Paul Nuki, who's the global health security editor for the Daily Telegraph. And um, they were asked on the media show, would they have published uh, the story if they'd had it in the UK? I wouldn't have published that, not because the government are asking you not to publish, but because separate to that, you then have to have a discussion within your senior leadership team in your newsroom. And I think for me, the benefit of getting that story out there, the benefit of getting a scoop before somebody else does, is in no way offset by the danger to public health. You're a US company. Would your bosses in America think differently? We have complete editorial sure. independence. But, but what, do you, what, what's, what would be their sense, do you think? Would they come to the same sorts of conclusions about balancing? Yeah. Hell of a scoop, Paul. If you had this scoop, uh, you took it to your editor, she just went through the reasoning that Jess has put forward very articulately. How do you respond? I mean, I think we would take that scoop pretty quickly to the government and say, look, is it right? And if it is, you need to bring this forward because we're going to get this out now and we would work with them uh, a threat, to make it? sure that there weren't lives at That's risk. a threat to a time of a public health crisis. You've got to threaten government when they've got so much on, Paul. Well, we, you know, we've got our interests, readers' interests uh, at heart. Gee, well, it's a real dilemma, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because two completely different responses really, wasn't it? Jess Bramer at Huffington Post saying, no, we wouldn't publish that even if our American owners really thought that was a great scoop and we should. The Daily Telegraph, you know, mainstream... Uh, even conservative uh, British t- um, uh, broadsheet paper saying, oh, no, we, we would take that to the government, try and get it on the record. Um, you know, this is public health stuff. You know, they're not saying, oh, look, in the, in the, uh, we won't interfere with the, with the good governance of public health and just wave that story uh, for the greater good. They really want to publish it. So, yeah, completely different uh, takes on that. And looking at the financial ramifications too and the media's role in that. Yeah, there's been some good... Articles about this um, lately, one was by Duncan Grebe of the spin-off saying, um, you know, the, the journalism uh, has generated enormous levels of interest in this story. There's a very case, good case for the strong value of journalism and the importance of our media companies. Um, but, of course, with this, all the economic pain, major advertisers and travel, tourism and, and live events, they're slashing their budgets. And this is going to be huge for media financially uh, in the coming months and years even. Um, he made a good point about sport, actually, because one of the vulnerable broadcasters is Sky. He said, whereas once that company had about a 50-50 balance between movies and premium TV and including the sport, now they've really bet the farm on sport, that huge deal to keep top-grade rugby and the All Blacks. Um, they've even named the Caketon Stadium here in, in Wellington as the Sky Sports Stadium. Uh, and he says what looked like a smart series of moves a few weeks ago uh, now leave Sky incredibly exposed because all these things like Super Rugby, the NBA, basketball, um, the Masters Golf and so on, these uh, products that they had exclusively live, um, they're all gone and that leaves what he called a, a huge content void. Um, so, yeah, very, very little sport uh, left to play on.
And a huge advertising void as well. Yeah, it's a kind of incredible that the A-League is still going. I actually went to the Cake Tin or Sky Sports Stadium here in Wellington, took the kids because I thought that would be about the last A-League fixture of any kind, uh, particularly in football, perhaps the ANZ Netball st- Premiership still on, but uh, yeah, not a lot uh, to, to go on uh, in the future. Uh, but they're still trying to um, to carry on with the A League, with the Phoenix moving to Australia, which is kind of astonishing. And um, Paul Eiffel, Phoenix legend, tweeted during that match saying, "Look, this seems astonishing. They shouldn't be doing it. I think this is money talking." Um, and in England, I know they've got the incredibly lucrative Premier League. That's now suspended till April, but they were really reluctant to call it off. And the European Champions League went on. So just on the 12th of March, uh, Liverpool played Atletico Madrid in a game that hardly anyone thought should have been played. 3,000 fans went from Madrid to attend it. Now, they couldn't even go to matches in their own city because of Spain's lockdown, yet they flew to Liverpool. And uh, have a listen to this. This is David Maddock, a football journalist in the UK. He went to the game. And then he just reacted with horror about, you know, seeing these visiting supporters on, uh, this is a Sky Sport show called Sunday Supplement. After that game, I went home, turned on the TV, and there was uh, Professor, Professor John Ashton, who was, who was on Newsnight, and he said, and I'd literally just come in from that game, and he said, there are, more, there are thousands of Madrid fans in Liverpool, and I can guarantee, he, this, guy, this guy is the head of the, of the Faculty of Public Health, or he was, and he said, I can guarantee some will have the virus and they are now spreading the virus in Liverpool. That's what the, the, this expert said. And I just got back from that game and I, was, I could not believe that that could have happened. Yeah, fair call. Yeah, it's, it's, it's horrible, isn't it? They're literally yeah. spreading the virus as, as you know, he was at the match. Mm. And uh, rugby players and their behaviour on and off the field. I've put on the uh, Lately page a video little video of uh, this English player, Joe Marler. What is is he exactly doing there in rugby? (laughs) Well, this is kind of extreme. Put to mind because we had last weekend you talked to Hayden about this NRL scandal. I know a different code, the rugby league, but uh, these NRL players who hooked up with two 17-year-olds, they met at a school visit uh, by the the Bulldogs team to the school. Yes, right. And uh, this was discussed on the Devlin radio show on Radio Sport and ZB last weekend, the host Martin Devlin. He raised that with his regular guest uh, on Aussie uh, rugby, Greg Martin. And um, Greg Martin uh, said, look, both of them, they really just focused on the conduct of the young women in the story. Um, But coincidentally... um, they, you know, they, they were saying, look, she's trying to sell her story to the papers and it's terrible. And coincidentally, uh, the very next topic they talked about was a 10-week ban for the English rugby forward Joe Marler. So I guess this is the video you've put up there. He was caught on camera trying to provoke the captain of Wales by, um, well, he tweaked his penis during the game. Is that what he was doing? He did. And so this was a major... It's very bizarre. 10-week ban was a French prop got three weeks for breaking the nose of a Scottish player with a blow to the face. So there was a lot of discussion about having talked about these rugby players and whether the conduct with these schoolgirls was was really the worst thing in the world. They ended up also talking about um, whether the punishment fit the crime of this, uh, what they called... um, They they ended up with a conclusion. This is a one-minute mashup here of the pundits on the Devlin radio show all agreeing that the uh, the punishment didn't fit the crime because ghoulie grabbing is all part of the game. Did it, but I mean, just the disturbing act of I'm just going about my business in my recreational capacity and another man is is trying to touch my Johnson. Yes, well, it's a serious game and that ball is all essential, or both of them are. So what what do you think is the worst offence, Marty? 
being punched in the face of the potential for a broken cheekbone, jaw or nose, or having your nether regions tickled by a large gentleman. It just doesn't make sense. I know people say, look, if this happened in the office, if you're standing at the, at the coffee machine and a, fe- a fellow worker came up and grabbed your nuts, yeah, you would be probably taking the action of the French prop. The Christmas hold, as it used to be called, has been as much a part of the game, the dark arts, the unseen places. It has been around as long as men have wrestled in those grapply, wriggly, physically contacting places. Ten weeks for an on-field sporting encounter of the untoward kind, it just does seem a little like hitting your plums with a mallet. We call that the Christmas hold. The Christmas hold, I know, it's gruesome. I mean, what they were saying was this goes on in rucks and walls, did in the past, often wasn't picked up on camera as it was for this fella, Joe Marler, who did it out in the open, so he's a bit silly. But this is all part of the game. Greg Martin, the Australian... Is, it? is yeah. it all part of the game? Apparently so. Uh, the French have did you it seen in the video? Yes, I have. Yeah. It's really disturbing. Well, it is, because, but he's trying to provoke him. And I guess they say, you know, this, this does happen. Uh, and, and, but what I find weird is it just leaves you wondering. Like, they're trying to excuse. Well, not saying, look, it's part of the game. He got caught out. He shouldn't be banned for 10 weeks. And in the context of the earlier discussion they'd had about these NRL players and, the, you know, all consenting adults. Yes, these girls were 17. These girls, they call them 17. And no one mentioning the fact this was a school visit by these rugby league players. It leaves me wondering just what conduct by rugby players, our professional sports reporters and pundits sort of reckon is okay because they were done by sportsmen in, you know, these particular contexts. Depends what radio station you're listening to, Colin. Yeah, I think I think that's <laughs> part of it. Oh, very good. Well, thank you very much for that. And all of the links are on the Media Watch page. And as I said, I put that video up on the Lately page. When I say disturbing, it's just weird. I think weird is a better way of describing it. Weird, I think so. And, and uh, yeah, you'll also see Jurgen Klopp, uh, the coronavirus Klopp, the manager of Liverpool FC, taking his own action on coronavirus with the Liverpool supporters. That's worth a look as well. Yeah, it is. Thanks very much, Colin. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. No worries. See you then. See you then. That's Colin Peacock with Midweek Media Watch. And, of course, we'll always be able to do that because uh, we are just in a studio talking. So coronavirus be damned, as they say. Let's finish with Dunedin's Fish Rider Records signing, six-piece Wellington-based band Tidal Rave and their track FOMO, Fear of Missing Out. Here's Tidal Rave.
RNZ National with Tidal Rave and the track is called FOMO and it's from their new album Heart Screams and that's us for tonight. My thanks to my guests this evening. Thanks to Sarah Smith who talked to us from New York, got up very early to have a chat with us about what life is like in New York and thanks to Colin Peacock, my producers and you. Good night.